This episode of the JRMD podcast discusses multiple sulfatase deficiency. Hello, today we are talking about multiple sulfatase deficiency. We have four fantastic guests on the podcast. I'd like to begin by introducing the first, Alan Finglas. Alan is a parent of a child with MSD. He's a recently published author with the journal and an excellent opinion piece as part of our View from the Inside series. He's founded a charity for children with MSD, Saving Dylan, and he's also a keen advocate for research. Alan, hello. Hi, James. My other guests are three of a group of authors who've written two recent papers on MSD, the first a large natural history study and the second a wide-reaching systematic review of well over 100 cases, and they are... My name is Laura Edang. I'm an assistant professor of child neurology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania, and my work focuses on clinical trial readiness for rare disorders. Hi, my name is Rebecca Ahrens Nicholas. I'm also an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm a metabolic physician and researcher, and my work focuses on understanding neurometabolic disorders. Hello, my name is Lars Trotava. I'm a pediatrician at the University Medical Center in Göttingen, Germany. I'm also a child neurologist. I'm working on neurometabolic disorders and MSD in particular. Now, you acknowledge in one of your paper titles this MSD is an ultra-rare disease. So I wonder if you'd perhaps begin by just giving a brief description, if you would. Yeah, so as you already said, it's, it's ultra-rare, and it's an ultra-rare lysosomal storage disorder. And the special thing about MSD is that it is caused by a defect in a post-translational modification um, that's necessary to activate sulfatases for their full catalytic activity in every cell. And patients with MSD have got mutations in the so-called SUMF1 gene, which is um, sulfatase-modifying factor 1. And this is the gene encoding the formal glycine-generating enzyme, or FGE in short, and this enzyme is necessary to convert an amino acid in the active site of every sulfatase for that sulfatases get active. And when you're suffering from MSD, if you have a functional compromised FGE and then as a result, a lack of activities in every cellular sulfatase. And as there are 17 sulfatases encoded in the gene, you have a combined deficiency of all these sulfatases. And this ends up in a phenotype that comprises symptoms of single sulfatase deficiencies like metachromatic leukodystrophy signs, as well as a lot of mucopolysaccharidosis, but also skin disease, which is X-linked ichthyosis if you got the single gene disorder. And this makes MSD pretty unique from the biochemical side as well as from the clinical side and also really complicated in terms of how the clinical presentation looks like and how patients look like when they're affected by MSD. Now, Alan, your son Dylan has been diagnosed with MSD. You had to go, I presume, from having never heard of this condition to becoming an expert pretty quickly. What was it that you found when you started learning about MSD? When my son was diagnosed with MSD in 2014, I'd, I'd never heard of the condition before. I didn't even know what a lysosomal storage disorder was. I couldn't have even classified metabolic conditions in any shape or form. I knew nothing about rare diseases. What I discovered fairly quickly was that when my son was diagnosed, all meaningful research had really stopped. There was no dedicated patient organization in the world that was really focused on MSD. 
there was some very, very important research carried out before my son was diagnosed, but I felt that although it, it made a major contribution to help expand knowledge, there was no real push to pursue translational research and then try and move that towards clinic. So yeah, I mean, I completely engulfed myself in MSD to learn as much as I could and then trying to reach out to, to people who knew the condition or who published on it or experts like the people we have on the call today. And you founded your own patient group, didn't you? And you've also created an advocacy group around that to help fund research. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, our goal is to promote and support research that will lead to positive clinical outcomes and quality of life for patients suffering from MSD. So raising funds was the kind of first thing while we were still learning more about the condition and trying to figure out who were the best people to approach in relation to research. And we had a conference in 2017, which was really, really important in terms of giving us a better direction of how to move forward. You talked about wanting to learn more about the condition. These two papers, on the face of it, they're, they're quite similar, but they're also very different. You've set out to better define MSD in two different ways, a wide-ranging case review and a very large natural history study. I wonder if you could explain what you've done. Sure. So it became clear as sort of the advocacy efforts started and restarted for this disease that there was a big hole in being able to successfully translate any potential therapy into the clinic. And that was really that we didn't understand the natural history of this disorder. As Lars said, it's a very complex disease, both biochemically and clinically, and it's limited in our ability to be able to understand the natural history because it is so rare. And so really stemming from the meeting that Alan referred to from 2017, we sat down and tried to come up with a way to better be able to capture the natural history of MSD. And we decided to take this approach using really retrospectively collected data or already published data because of the ultra rare nature of MSD and because of the fact that for a lot of these kids, it's difficult to travel because they're so impaired by their disorder. So we took sort of two separate approaches to see if our data would line up and if, if our results would be generalizable between multiple cohorts. The first is this um, systemic review and meta-analysis where Lars's team really led this and did this Herculean effort to try to find every published case of MSD and gleam every piece of clinical information that we could in a robust, quantifiable way. Um, and then in parallel, we set up an international retrospective natural history study where we asked for clinical records and all clinical information from patients with MSD from around the world. Again, to really try to understand the trajectory of this disorder and to be able to quantify change over time um, using longitudinal clinical records. And we were really happy to see that the two techniques and the two approaches really showed us complementary data that really supported what this disease looks like at a population level, or at least an MSD population level. So you've identified 143 patients in the systematic review, 35 patients in the natural history study with very good data, or at least 32 of those. With all the data that you've accumulated, how has that shaped your knowledge of this condition? Yeah, um, I think the, the biggest thing that we identified or that we realized from both studies was that even though this is a disorder that's really a combination of a number of different monogenic sulfatase activity disorders, right? So it has features, as Lars said, of MLD and multiple MPS disorders. We were expecting to not be able to really define coherent clinical subgroups within this population because it's just such a complex disorder. We thought that this would, the, the presentation would just be too variable to be able to identify groups of patients that sort of follow the same trajectory. 
So we were surprised when we saw that there really seems to be two forms of this disease and you could categorize children into one of the two forms. So a more severe course that's fairly uniform in its trajectory and in patient's neurologic regression and really loss of milestones all really before three or four years of life. And then a more attenuated form that's more variable, but across the board, um, you really could differentiate children into one of two severity categories. So I think we saw this in both studies, um, and I think it has important implications for future clinical trials and clinical trial design for MSD. So I think that in rare diseases, ultra-rare diseases especially, progressive severe diseases, we don't have the luxury to wait for a thorough prospective trial to recruit enough patients for us to truly understand what's happening in the disease. And so it takes us um, compiling the work of others in synthesizing this knowledge to really create a new foundation of clinical care and a basis for moving the research forward. Our knowledge of any disorder is an evolving process, and we've learned immensely on better how to care for children with MSD through our two studies by looking at the published cases and within our retrospective natural history study. But this, too, will evolve over time as we use our foundation and discover new things on how to better care for kids. About the survival that we found, this has dramatically changed across rare diseases because of our improving ability to help kids and provide preventative care. And so what we have found in the literature often lags years, if not decades, behind the reality. And this will be true for our work, too. The reality of the disease onset is also really muddled. Um, We found that as we looked into the retrospective records, we oftentimes could discover subtle features earlier than both the, the clinical team and honestly, sometimes even the parents. And so as we we were surprised that within our natural history study, even the milder form or this attenuated form, which Rebecca referred to, we could identify subtle signs and symptoms years before their fulminant disease onset. And so as we publish more papers and share this information and understanding of MSD, hopefully other providers can use this information to identify these subtle signs and symptoms and investigate further. And perhaps other families won't have quite as long of a journey from disease onset to diagnosis as many of our current families have experienced. One of the things we were most interested in is how to track change over time using our retrospective natural history disease study. Um, In a prospective study, children come into a research visit at a predetermined time and have a predetermined set of validated outcome measures. But in a retrospective study, we have to be very creative. So we gathered the outcome measures that we thought might be able to be applied retrospectively to the medical records and could be potentially relevant to MSD. Um, We ended up choosing two scales that were derived from the metachromatic leukodystrophy literature to study both motor function and language function, and then a scale for eating and drinking function as well. And we applied these scales to every single medical encounter to be able to quantitate function over time and and map how these functions were changing. And as we did this, some interesting trends emerged that we weren't anticipating. Um, We found that a subset of children who lost their walking skills in a very predictable pattern around the same time of age, which 
was surprising to us. And so it was using these retrospective scales in a way that hadn't been done before that really revealed more information about the the course of the disease than we were expecting to be able to understand from this platform. So to build on that, as we were trying to measure disease progression or disease severity, we realized that not only should we be looking at clinical features, but also biochemical features. So this is actually one limitation of a retrospective natural history study or a meta-analysis of the literature, and that we have records from, for example, enzyme activity testing, glycosaminoglycan um, accumulation measurements. But the problem with retrospectively collected data is that these were all done in different laboratories. And so it was a little, it was difficult to make concrete conclusions, in all honesty, about different biomarkers of disease severity or progression. Um, And I think this is one limitation of retrospective natural history studies. We did have the unique opportunity of being able to, in a uniform central laboratory, um, look in an in vitro system at a number of the new variants that were identified in, in our cases. And so really looking through in vitro studies, looking at FGE activity and looking at sulfatase activity or FGE stability and sulfatase activity, we were able to compare novel mutations. So we were able to find amongst our cohort sort of the biochemical reason why they had an MSD. Um, But unfortunately, given the limitations of a retrospective natural history study, based on the clinical records that were available, we just couldn't come to conclusions about for example, if a single sulfatase activity or a single sulfatase decrease could predict the age of neurologic regression or the severity of disease. Um, and so that's things for the future um, to work on um, in a more uniform way. And if I might pick up on this, this was quite an astonishing result still because given the biochemistry and the pathophysiology of MST, you would expect that there's a correlation between disease severity and how sulfatase are impaired, but as we did not find this, we picked up an old idea that we were working on for quite a while, even before these studies, and this was the idea of having a genotype-phenotype correlation in MSD, where you can say, okay, severe mutation in the gene leads to a severe clinical presentation, and the other way around, that you have a mild mutation that will lead to attenuate causes of the disease. And with data from both studies, indeed, we could show that such kind of a correlation might well exist in MSD. And this is also pretty important because this helps us in predicting the cause of the disease with a given mutation. So we categorized mutations into severe and milder forms or attenuate forms of mutations given the residual activity of the NGFG enzyme that we were able to measure as well as the stability of the protein both things affect the functionality of the protein and we could clearly show that this correlates with the time of survival with severe mutations leading to early death in patients and attenuated causes when you have a milder mutation and this is also something that's really important not only for predicting the disease cause for counseling patients but also if you think about the design of a clinical trial and what kind of patients you're going to choose to really prove that a likely therapy that might come up at any time for MSD has really got a benefit for these patients. And this is a really, really important readout of what we did in these two studies. Before we move on from this, 
Alan, this is what you've been pushing for. This is comprehensive. Look at the condition. I don't know what your thoughts are on what you want to see now. Obviously, what you wanted was this kind of research. And what you know, where do you see this going? These studies have helped to expand that knowledge on MSD immensely uh, to the point that I feel that clinical trials for MSD can be designed with a good level of confidence. Uh, what has been done is really a, a once-in-a-lifetime effort by numerous highly engaged experts, patient organizations that help to encourage participants to enroll in the study. And I suppose what I really hope is that these studies can convince regulators that a prospective natural history study on MSD may not be an essential prerequisite in order to gain IND permission for any potential clinical trial in the future. Of course, you know, you could never forget that MSD is, is an ultra rare disease. So I hope regulators could allow for that. I feel we're in a really strong position, you know, to thinking about clinical trials to what we've gained. Obviously, this is close to 180 patients. It's a, it's a huge amount of data. As Alan said, it feels like it's a very good clinical description. Is the, the next step from here uh, trials? Have, is there anything in the pipeline? Or is this an unfair question? I'll take that one. I agree with Alan. I, I think that the reason we did this really trying, aiming towards trial design and an appropriate clinical trial design for MSD. And I think because of the amazing support of a lot of both Alan's foundation and, and the foundation here in the U.S., that there are a lot of really promising preclinical programs that are being developed using a variety of approaches from everything from small molecule therapies to you know, gene replacement type approaches. And so I think there's a lot of really promising preclinical research um, in terms of next steps of clinical trial preparedness and clinical trial readiness, I think it's important that we build on the work that was presented in these two papers and that really the things that we're going to be focusing on is expanding our, our collection of patients and trying to understand what happens over time in these patients. So we're definitely still recruiting individuals into the study, but also trying to fill in some of those holes that we mentioned from, from the retrospective approach. So things like biomarker development and discovery is going to be really important um, as we move forward into clinical trial design. So those are our sort of ongoing efforts at this point. I also think we have the advantage of MSD will be picked up potentially on newborn screening for several of the other disorders that are based in sulfatase deficiencies. So um, there are pilot programs looking at metachromatic leukodystrophy, which will detect MSD abnormalities as well. So I think we have the opportunity in the coming years to be able to identify children pre-symptomatically and using the foundation of our two studies, um, hopefully we'll be able to better understand what their future course will be. But that's an area of great interest to us as well, is identifying that genotype-phenotype correlation, as well as identifying any other factors that will help us to prognosticate um, advise families as well as potentially enroll in appropriate clinical trial cohorts. Um, so Alan, I want to just come back to you because you're really in the thick of this now. You've gone from zero to you know expert parent in no time at all. You must surely understand more about the process of disease advocacy than you did at the start. Metabolic medicine is full of ultra-rare disorders. What feedback would you have for clinicians working in these fields and the families who are just starting out on 
the journey that you set off on in 2014. Conditions like MSD are too rare not to collaborate on. I've often said this to, to, to doctors that have MSD patients around the world at conferences, and, and this is really, really critical. We also put out brochures at conferences where on the front page I had the diagnosis needs the patients. You know, For things as ultra rare as MSD, this is absolutely the case. It was kind of a play on words, but you know, it, it did actually create some food for thought for some doctors who maybe do have patients, but maybe were not forthcoming with, with wanting to collaborate and to try and think about natural history and understand the disease better. I always want clinicians to make patient families aware of, of patient organizations that might exist, especially if there are patient organizations that are promoting and supporting research. For me, research is hope. And I, I often say this to doctors, you know, that it's almost a therapy for patient families. The opposite to this is, is hopelessness which for me is unthinkable. I would not have been able to get through the last five years without hope. Uh, and for me, research is hope. In relation to feedback for families that are starting out on the journey of rare diseases, try and understand your condition. This way you can try to do the very best for patients by, by knowing what could arise with the condition. If there are clinical guidelines published Try and familiarize yourself with these as much as you can and refer to them when you have clinical visits at the hospital. Try and find other patient families. You can find families that have wonderful experience, you know, wonderful in the sense of, of you trying to do your best for a patient, you know, experience that you could lean on and, and, and possibly even some support. And maybe the last thing to, to patient families would be if, if you feel it's necessary to try and find some experts around the world. And if the opportunity arose to meet them at a conference, you know, I would never be afraid to do this. It could really help it, uh, stimulate research or be able to do better for, for the patient. Rebecca and Laura, you've shared your thoughts around the next steps in MSD. I wonder, Lars, you said this is a condition that is a particular interest of yours. Where do you see yourself going next? Maybe I can first of all say that it's been a long journey already on MSD and I've been following this up for a while and at any point I met Alan and the other patients and it gave a new speed to MSD research and I'm pretty astonished how fast we moved forward in the past years and I'm pretty happy to see this happening as well. And um, the next steps on the horizon are definitely that we're going to work on the natural disease history study even better than we did now. And um, as Becca said, we'll find out more things that will help clinical trial readiness as well as the understanding of the disease, treating the disease and counseling for patients. And of course, we were also working on likely therapies good signs on the horizon and preclinical experiments are working well and maybe we will see something in the near future and then hopefully we'll be ready with clinical data as well and this is a great opportunity for MSD and maybe we even did it better than other metabolic diseases where often you had a treatment before the proper understanding of the disease and now we see a lot of problems coming up with this. And so we might have learned our lessons already and um, might be ready on time with both approaches um, for the best of our patients. Well, thank you to all four of you, to Alan, Lars, Laura and Rebecca. We heard in the last episode about the enthusiasm of clinicians and the, the interest of families to drive things forward. And I think these three articles are certainly worth a, a read. And if you go to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease web pages and, and do a search for multiple sulfatase deficiency, these are the, the first three articles that will appear the natural history paper, the systematic review 
and Alan's patient perspective. If you want to hear more from us, you can search for JMB Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, thank you all for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us today. Thanks very much, James, for, for allowing me to be part of this podcast. I would like to express my immense gratitude to Lars, Rebecca and Laura for their commitment to MSD. Without their assistance, we would be struggling on, on many fronts and your work is going to make therapies possible for MSD. Thank you. It is an honor to work with these family organizations and my fellow investigators. It really is a synthesis of passion to help children that has helped to move this field along. So it's been an honor. I'm so glad I could bring you all together again. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us again, and I'll see you next time. 